If the Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour What up, what up, what up? Hey, it's Keith Giles in the house And you are listening to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast uh, I am joined by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt and Jamal. Hey, guys, say hi and uh, introduce yourself. Hi, friends. My name is Jamal Javanji, and I am the author of Free to Love, just published by Choir in February of 2016. I'm also a fan of the Ohio State University Buckeyes. And uh, I'm Matt DeStefano and author of four books. And uh, I am i don't want to talk about sports or anything sports because my San Jose Sharks got beat seven to nothing last night in the playoffs and it was <laughs> terrible. So Sorry. Leave, leave your Buckeye and sports talk alone. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's, let's get into it. Um, but first, uh, a word, of course, from our sponsor. And as always, they're the Unfundamentalist Group blog. Blog, not vlog, blog. And they are focused on following Jesus' commandments to love God and neighbor. And they're dedicated to opposing the toxic, power-mongering, fear-inflaming nonsense that is inherent in all economic, political, societal, and religious fundamentalism. You can find them online at facebook.com forward slash unfundamentalist or read their blog at unfundamentalists with an S at the end dot com. Jamal, take it away. Thank you for that, uh, Matt. I appreciate it. I always look forward to you reading that uh, every week. Um, and I, I, I have a announcement I'd like to make. Is that okay? Yes, please. please. Okay. Um, we have, uh, we, we thought it'd be a good idea to come up with, um, with a hotline. Uh, so it, as to be a, a vehicle for our listeners to be able to comment on, on the topics that we have been discussing. And so I'm just really proud and happy and excited to reveal this information uh, to the listeners. Um, let me give you the number just in case. So, okay. Um, here's the number. It's area code 240-343-7379. Of course, you don't put the dashes in. You just put the number in. But 240-343-7379 or 2403-HERESY for those with rotary. So I would love, <laughs> absolutely love uh, to hear you guys' comments or concerns or just encouragement, whatever. We really love it. We got a couple texts in. To yeah. the uh, to the hotline this week, which is amazing that that somebody knew the number, but they did. So um, to our producer, yes, thank you. Yes, 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 totally. It's get, it's queued up now. Okay, so here's the first text that came in. "Quote: Hey guys, this is Joel Weaver here. I just wanted to say I loved the last podcast. What is salvation? The only thing I really did not like was that Matt was not." in the interview with Bishop Carlton Pearson. <laughs> Although I really don't like yeah. Matt's, and he, he uses a cuss word here, fucking language. Smile on the face. <clears throat> it's not very Christian to swear like that, and it fucking pisses me off. Smile on the face. <laughs> also, it would be great if there was some kind of hotline. I know. And I could call or text so I could say shit like this, and later you guys could queue up and play it on the podcast. All joking aside, I really enjoy what you guys are doing and listen to you guys while I work. People like you guys keep me from going crazy and give me hope for Christianity. Much love. Oh. And that was from uh, listener Joel Weaver. Joel, thank you so much for your... It's, yeah, thank you for Thanks, your... Joel. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Joel lives in, in my hometown of Chico, so cheers, Joel. Thanks that for that. Cool. cool. Yeah. 
And and we'll be sending you a bill. So expect yes. that. You got you're gonna have, you're gonna have to make a donation here now. Yeah, because that's not my language. No, the swear jar. Because I don't yeah. cuss. That's right. That, that was Joel. For the, for the <laughs> okay. Second, the second text that we that came into the to the hotline is this. Hello, my name is Rick. I love your show and Facebook page. My question is, what are your thoughts and beliefs on the theology of the Holy Tri- Holy Trinity? Since I've begun religious deconstruction, I've questioned everything that doesn't make sense or sit well with me. The idea of the Trinity is one of them. Unquote. Wow, it's a great question, Rick. Yeah, and I would I would love to get into it, but I think we definitely have to devote an entire episode to this. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, but but just some initial thoughts. I actually think, and I and I used to be right there. Like the Trinity didn't make sense. None of the analogies really work. Like the have you seen? Have you guys seen that YouTube? Um, video of i think it's like saint patrick's heresies and he's trying to explain uh the trinity in in analogies that we use in the church and they're basically all ancient heresies right and so i i was i was like that like it it, it just didn't make sense to me like what do you mean god is there's one god but there's three distinct gods who are just one like it i was always confused but now i'm to a place i don't know it seems that if we think of god relationally trinity sort of works um, and, and, and then thinking about human beings, like we think of ourselves autonomously, but really we're just a collection of our, uh, of our relationships and, and you know, the mimetic theory the shot, that helps explain, <laughs> <laughs> that helps explain some of that, um, anthropological truths that, that, it, that is about the human being. Um, but I think that then works when talking about, um, a relational God. If, if if God is autonomous and just like sort of this um, being that we can't really have relationship with, um, I think the Trinity, the Trinity understanding then fills in that gap for me. But I think, again, we can spend a whole episode on this and I think we should in the future. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I had just a couple quick thoughts I had on it. I, I do think, you know... I think if we're thinking of the Trinity in the classic way that a lot of us have been taught it, I think it can, it, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally. Um, you know, idea of seeing the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So when we say Son, I mean, a lot of people think Jesus. So Jesus is the second person, the Holy Trinity. Um, I think that's, I think I, I'm okay with it. Even like the shack in the movie, in the book, you know, if you read, I mean, there's the depiction of God and obviously you have the Father, you have Papa, you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. And that's kind of a, uh, an analogy, a, a picture of God. And I don't mind the I don't mind analogies to try to communicate something larger. I think if you bank on the analogy, though, as being the whole thing, I think that's where it becomes problematic. So, for example, um, I, I tend to look at it as like, okay, it's a representative. The idea of the Trinity is representative of something deeper. So, the Father, I think, for me, my understanding of, of God, obviously, I've been deconstructing, you know, the. Zeus figure for a long time. So I don't see God as this man in the sky somewhere or this person in the sky somewhere. But like, if I understand God as the source of, of the immaterial, invisible source, and you know, Paul even uses language as the, you know, is this invisible. But then if you think about Christ, and obviously we're going to get into this in today's episode, <clears throat> we're going to get into this uh, the, the understanding of Christ, um, not, not synonymous with Jesus as Jesus' last name, but we're talking about Christ as the material manifestation of the invisible. And Paul uses this language in as he's unpacking this idea of Christ. So it's you know, it's the visible image of the invisible God. So this visible, I, I can understand Christ being the visible, 
it's expression in tangible material form of the invisible. And then, and the question is, what is Christ? Are we talking about just one man? I don't think so. I think we're talking about, and, and again, this is, we're going to get into this today's episode, but my understanding of that is that we're really talking about everything. So in the physical realm, the physical universe, you have the expression of the immaterial. And then in the spirit, you have, you know, kind of the energy that goes back and the creative force of that, that kind of brings that into manifestation. So I think if you look at it as like we operate this way as well, we have an imagination, it's immaterial, it's invisible. But then once we conceive of it in physical form, that becomes what I would like, like our Christ. And then once we bring that into fruition, you know, through, through the energy, that's like the spirit moving this Im- invisible concept that then becomes a, vi- a visible image, which and then brings that into creation, into fruition. That's just kind of my understanding. It's a patterned way of thinking about reality. It's, you know, the story of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit helps us with that, but it's not actual, like it goes way beyond that. And I think it's interesting that even in the the, the episode about, or not the episode, the the, uh, the, the scientific effort uh, to create a nuclear weapon, that it was called the Trinity Project, um, because the guy who, I think it was a German scientist, but that he understood that if you break apart the triune form of reality, and this again gets into physics, but there's a trinity in that. If you can break it apart, you can unleash a lot of power. It's a destructive power. But he believed that all things are held together in this triune way, in this triune nature, and that's actually the idea of trinity. But um, that's why it's called the Trinity Project to create a nuclear bomb. So very interesting. We can talk a lot more about it, but that's just my initial thoughts. Yeah, and then I, I, to just really, I'm only going to say a couple things, but I think you know Rick's question is more along the lines of like deconstructing uh, the idea of the trinity, and I, all I would say about that is that, um, like, I think, unfortunately, some Christians, a lot of evangelical Christians have made the tr- belief in the Trinity and acceptance of the Trinity doctrine uh, as sort of like, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian, which I think is sad, because I, I'm pretty sure the uh, the the original disciples had no formal uh, understanding of the Trinity. Uh, you know, they, in other words, what we sort of take for granted now uh, in the doctrine of the Trinity came many, many, many years, uh, lots and lots of discussion and debating and uh, thinking uh, where, whereas, you know, in other words, I don't think we should make that uh, an essential for for believing or being a Christian. Uh, and I would also just say in the simplest form, you know, like if a five-year-old girl, uh, you know, hears the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel and says, yes, I want to follow Jesus, um, she's a Christian, even if she can't, you know, accurately explain the Trinity. In fact, I would say almost no one can explain the Trinity. They can give you their, their closest approximation, but it's a, it's a mystery. And I think it's okay to leave it a mystery. And I think on the deconstructing side, if you are starting to back away from the, the Trinity, uh, although I, I mean, personally, I do believe I do it from the Trinity, but, but if you don't, and you're questioning it, I would just give you permission to continue to question that. And if you, and if you feel like it's not something that's helpful to you, um, I think you're, it's okay for you to just lay that aside or to, or to modify your understanding of God, um, if it isn't specifically Trinitarian. I think that's a good point. Just my thoughts. That's, yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. Um, I, we, we got to always save. I mean, there, there's mystery in so much of this. We have to leave room for people to work through that mystery and be okay with that mystery. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, Hey, I think it's time to talk about, uh, something we're really excited about here, which is our brand new Patreon page. And if you haven't been there yet, go to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And oh my gosh, there is so much cool stuff there. Like almost every day, uh, we are uploading some super cool stuff for you, for our supporters. Uh, we have like 22, 23, maybe 24. I don't know. I haven't last time I checked, uh, we're getting up there anyway. So thank you to everybody who has supported us. Um, but, but our supporters get access 
to exclusive stuff like blog articles. Like we had a blog article this week of five things no one knows about Matthew Stefano and five shocking secrets about Jamal Javanji, which is, oh my gosh, that alone, those two alone are worth, you know, the minimum <laughs> $5 a month. Uh, but video clips like how Jamal's temporary bout with amnesia led to his spiritual deconstruction. Um, we've also had bonus interview clips with Bishop Carlton Pearson. Um, we'll, we're going to be uploading one with Thomas J. Ord, uh, and also like a bonus podcast episode. So, um, in addition to this podcast episode, for example, today, when we're finished and we stop recording, we're going to then record another additional, you know, 15, 20 minute, uh, conversation, which will only be available, uh, to our supporters on Patreon. So, uh, we have so many cool things in store. I don't even have time to tell you, uh, there's even more cool stuff coming, but if you're not a supporter yet, please uh, go and sign up. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. It means so much to us. Uh, we're really blown away. And we have some people to, I want to thank by name. So this past week, we uh, these people signed up to support the Heretic Happier podcast and lo- unlock all the goodies. We have uh, Amanda Kleber, Michelle Collins, whoop, whoop, Juliana Metafuro, Joshua Elder, Joel Weaver, Caleb Combs, Ron Smith, Ryan Walker, Robert Lawrence, Julie Chandler, Dennis Kimball, and Steve Bailargian. I think that's how you say it, or just Steve B. Uh, but anyway, thank you guys so, so very much for supporting us. It means a lot. And uh, again, if you haven't supported us yet, I'm telling you, for as little as $5 a month, you are going to unlock so much awesome stuff. You're not going to believe it. It's awesome. And yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Can I jump in here real quick? I just, I just wanted to say, like, I am so blown away with the people, I mean, just the na- hearing you read the names are just beautiful uh, people that would take time to actually yeah. go to the Patreon website and and find Heretic Capier there and, and just to like sign up. Like I know, it, it, I understand it's relatively easy to do that. It's like, you know, we're talking cents on the day, 33 cents or something for like 10 bucks or, you know, it's just, I know it's, that's not like a huge thing, it, but it is, but to us it is. It is the fact that you took the time that you went there you yep. like it's like it means a lot it does help we're 50 percent there you know like we're 50 percent of phase one we have phase one we, we're trying to raise 400 dollars, which honestly immediately we could do we could knock that out in one day if everyone listening to this just would would respond to that and again i know that's not to be guilt or anything like that no, no pressure but if if the, if the inclination is like yeah we enjoy this podcast then if you have pennies on the day if you have like you know 30 cents their extra 33 cents you can just you know, donate to the podcast, um, a day that, that would be, um, really, that would just be very helpful to us. And so we're just, you know, we want to get phase one done because we want to move forward, but phase one is really critical that we get that $400, get up to that $400 mark. So thank you guys for helping us do that. Yep. Yeah. Cause we're, we're planning something really cool for that 400. Yes. You can't tell you what it is yet, but it's- just, just going to throw it out there. I'm not going to, I'm not, no, no spoiler alerts, but it's, it's a pretty fucking awesome idea. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is. So I guess, I guess we got to move on uh, uh, into our Heretic of the Week, one we've been really excited about. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hello, I'm Richard Rohr, and I'm a heretic. Hi, Hi Richard. Richard, <laughs> Richard uh, we are so happy to have you on the podcast and, and so excited to speak with you today. Um, <clears throat> just wanted to jump right in and, and get our first question rolling. Why is it, in your opinion, that some folks believe that you're a heretic? Uh, I suppose there's a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, you know, I was educated in, in the history of Christian theology, not just the conclusions uh, of Christian thought, but the process of getting there. Hmm. And so I, I tend to talk that way because I, uh, 
I was educated that way. So most people just want you to repeat the conclusions that they were given or that they think you were supposed to be given. And when you don't talk exactly that way, the easiest word is heretic. So, you know, I, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but I, I usually can't take it too seriously. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I think we, we, we discussed, uh, heresy and what heresy is in in the first couple episodes when we first started this show and it was really fascinating just to to flesh out how the idea of heresy has sort of evolved over time um to where it is today like you said it doesn't line up with my theology therefore it's heresy and i just i find that to be a fascinating phenomenon in the church you know it really is and i hope this isn't offensive but that's especially true when you're raised Catholic. You know, I mean, we always considered ourselves the mother church of Western Christianity. Uh, and so all the rest of you were the heretics. <laughs> <laughs> and, of, and of course, we in the Protestant tradition would say the same thing and, and not even realize our own history, right? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. It's also relative and so self-referential, you know. But I remember being genuinely uh, shocked when a Protestant called me a heretic. I just <laughs> it didn't compute. <laughs> oh, my. But we are pretty good in the Protestant tradition of doing that. At least that's been my experience. <laughs> yeah, you really are. And even that surprised me because I always assumed that you weren't as obsessed with so-called orthodoxy as we are. <laughs> but I found out that every church is just in its own yeah, way. The problem is we create our own mm. orthodoxy. And that's, that's really the problem, especially with Protestant right. Christianity is there's so many different Protestant denominations, uh, each one of them believing that they, they have now classified themselves as orthodoxy. And then anything that doesn't look or smell like them must be a her heresy. Mm. Yeah. The narcissism of it is patently obvious, but most people can't mm. see that. That's a great, Right. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a great true. word, and and Richard, it's <clears throat> my name is Jamal, and it's great to just great to have you on the the podcast. I've been a uh, yeah, I've been it's, uh, you've been somebody I've been following for quite a while, and uh, just to give you, I, I have a I'm I've been looking forward to this interview for a while because um just personally speaking, you know my mom is devout Catholic. Um, she is part of a, a Dominican order, very strong Dominican order. Um, and my mom, my dad, um, was Muslim and he converted to Catholicism, uh, several years ago. Really? Wow. Yes. Yeah. And it's, um, it's just been, and of course it's, uh, their, their, their branch, their, their order is very, uh, very pre-Vatican II. I'm sure you're familiar with all that. Oh. Just very, very, um, very, anyway, I have a lot of, and of course I became an evangelical when I was around 18, went to. Southern Baptist University became a pastor, so I'm deconstructing from the whole evangelical world. Have been for many years, but um, one of the things that I have noticed <clears throat> about Catholicism, and I made, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, you know, as a as you know, as a Catholic, um, one of the things that I have <clears throat> just noticed about the train, even coming from a Muslim background, there's such <clears throat> like a reaction to Jesus being. Um, almost like an, I don't, I don't want to, I want to not to be offensive, but almost like Jesus becoming <clears throat> the new idol or, or an idol, so to speak. Uh, I've, I've just kind of picked up on that. That's, that's, that's obviously a reaction that many Muslims have against 
traditional Christian ideas of the Trinity, that Jesus is um, like this idol. But also in my understanding of church history, I kind of see the same emphasis, this, 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 I, I, this making this Jesus into this idol. This, and I wanted to ask you specifically about this concept of Christ. And one of the reasons I, I'm, I'm interested in this is because your order uh, as a Franciscan, being um, uh, Francis of Assisi is really perplexing to me uh, because I feel like Francis understood something that seems to be lost in most of Christian history. Um, and, and specifically in regards to understanding Christ, like the understanding of Christ, not just with this overemphasization of with Jesus, but understanding Christ as like, correct me if I'm wrong, because I, obviously I think you would know as a Franciscan, but my understanding is that Francis under had this revelation, really not from a, a scholarly vantage point. I think he's coming from maybe, I think he was uneducated and all these kinds of things, but had this understanding of the Christ as everything, as the cosmos. I mean, that's why he would obviously refer to like animals as brother and sister. I just wanted to maybe get, maybe if you could just expound on that, or I feel like that's such a hard thing for us to grasp, specifically in the evangelical world, but in the Western world in general, just seeing the, how everything is the manifestation of the divine. Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, uh, could I talk about it? It's the book I'm writing right now. Oh. <laughs> oh, please limit me. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, you know, yeah, the publisher keeps playing with the title, one of them being Christ is not Jesus' last name. Yes. But you're yes, absolutely yes, right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. We began uh, Francis intuitively, and then two early Franciscan intellectuals, one called Bonaventure, one called Dun Scotus. They took this to the whole theological level. And so the Franciscan tradition, we always, as you very well said, we emphasize Jesus' humanity, and yet ironically, in the context of the cosmic Christ. Our uh, premier Christological texts were the hymn in the first chapter of Ephesians, the hymn in the first chapter of Colossians, the prologue to John's gospel. Yep. That was our basic Christology. And you're absolutely right. That put us on a different track than mainline Catholicism. And the irony is, although Protestantism thought it was throwing out Catholicism, it's clearly a child of mainline Catholicism. Yep. You, by and large, accepted the mainline uh Catholic position on so many things, that your spirituality ended up being much more of what we call a fall redemption analysis, beginning with Genesis 3, Mm. where the Franciscan tradition was a creation spirituality based in Genesis 1. And uh, the exciting thing right now is, of course, is that the so-called Franciscan position or creation spirituality is finally coming unto its own and being broadly accepted because our present knowledge of the universe demands it, (laughs) that we have a a God as big as the universe and not a God who's based on a sin that was committed between the Tigris and Euphrates River 
several thousand years before. It's just too small, you see, Mm -hmm. at least to our way of thinking. Yeah. So this book, uh, Another Name for Everything, now looks like it's going to be the title. Oh, wow. On the Universal Christ. That will come out in uh, around Thanksgiving, I think. Oh, that's, that that's, sounds amazing. That is, you'll love it. I would, I would like to see. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's so beautiful. Yeah. It, is it Eastern more Eastern in thought? Would you say that like Francis's revelation of the 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 incarnation of everything? Like, I've, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I've heard you say like the incarnation didn't just happen two thousand years ago when we celebrate, you know, the the incarnation of Jesus, of but it actually happened at the, the big bang. Yes, well, I, th- I think that, I think yeah. that statement in itself, like the incarnation happened at the Big Bang, is a game changer. Completely. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. Yeah, it it re- you know God wasn't sitting around saying nothing for thirteen point six billion years. <laughs> <laughs> it leaves us with an empty universe, an unsacred universe. It's it's incoherent yeah. theology, as far as I. So the way the early Franciscans put it was, the first Bible is creation. Mm. The second Bible came along just a few thousand years ago. Wow, I love it. And it seems it seems that this conversation that you're having, and I appreciate your courage, by the way, in having it, especially even in your stream of of, of Christianity. Um, but it seems that what you're bringing to the table is actually. I love it because it seems to put Christianity in the same conversation that of our Eastern brothers and sisters, like the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. Like it seems to bring us all to this to the same table. I mean, would you agree with that? Well, you see, once you base the revelation in creation, we have what is almost a natural religion, and that's not a put down. That's a compliment, you know. Uh, and not just the Eastern religions are we much more dialogical with, but Eastern Christianity. Yes. But, you know, after 1054, Western and Eastern Christianity stopped talking to one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for all the gift, and I mean that sincerely, of Protestant Reformation and reforms, you are only reforming one half of the pie. Right. <laughs> and the other half was where all of the uh, Athanasius, Maximus the Confessor, Cyril of Alexandria, the Eastern Fathers emphasized John 1.14. The Word became flesh. Mm-hmm. And that was a generic understanding before it was a personal understanding in Jesus. You, you follow me? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, can, you, can you expand on that a little bit? When you say generic well, understanding. In other words, it was, first of all, saying the word took on materiality, physicality, oh, wow. flesh. Whereas you and I have made that leap so quickly, me too, to, oh, well, flesh, he means Jesus. <laughs> A broader category than Jesus. I love At it. At least that's the way, I mean, Athanasius is called the father of orthodoxy. And he makes that very clear. Already in the second and third century, if I if I have his dates right, but once we stopped reading the Eastern Fathers, we lost that access point, and we pretty much emphasized the incarnation as just meaning Jesus. I, I, wow, that that is that's huge. A game that's changer. a that's a, oh, it's a yeah. game changer. So what you're saying is that this 
like our traditional understanding, when I say traditional, I mean like in our Western context, traditional understanding of John 114 is that the writer intended that uh, when it says the word became flesh, that's strictly talking about the person of Jesus. But you're saying that even in, in Athanasius had this understanding and the Eastern, our Eastern Christian brothers and sisters had this understanding that it was not talking specifically, not, not exclusively about Jesus, but about it's it's materiality in general. And that's why I, I mean, does one John even use the name Jesus? I don't think that's right. That's, that's profound. This is a game changing understanding. Well, it is. It really is. Yeah. Wow. Well, it doesn't, eliminate jesus it doesn't make less of jesus at all right it just gives us a much broader entrance point and then jesus becomes the icon the personalization of the universal truth wow. which is very good that's very good beautiful yeah. beautiful well i wanted to ask you about this specifically um in in relation to all of this because i, I feel like um and i'm not as i'm not as familiar with carl runner um um, but I know, obviously, you know, Carl Runner had a had a big influence in the Vatican II Council and sh- shaping yeah. Catholic thought. Yeah. And I um, I remember being in college and doing um, I did a report on yeah. Vatican II specifically. And at the time, I was very you know I was Southern Baptist uh, went to a Southern Baptist University, very you know uh, <laughs> a very very sure. fundamentalist in that sense. And so I I, I read Vatican II with horror and actually agreed with my with my mom on that. I remember my parents like they. And but as a as an evangelical, I was like agreeing that this was a game changing um, doctrine or or counsel. But I've come to love it since then. <laughs> like now, I love it. I think it's it's, it's incredible. Not. But one of the things that he talked talked about in um in in the Vatican II or Karl Rahner specifically mentioned something called anonymous Christianity, or maybe that was just um, a phrase that was used. But basically, the idea that all people, no matter what where you your faith tradition lies is in some form a Christian meaning like, you know, like kind of, I think the, the example that I read was like a seed. Like if you plant a seed of a tree and you know, you, it doesn't look like an apple tree. So you have an apple seed, you plant it. It doesn't look like an apple tree at its seedling form or if it's, it's sprouting, it doesn't look like an apple tree, but it, it is very much that at all stages along the way. And the way I heard it explained and, um, was that all people at, are at various different stages in their Christ consciousness or awareness. And so basically, all people, though, at their basic essence, are the manifestation of Christ. Um, that's what I took away from some of Carl Rahner's understanding. Uh, this is kind of what was being... So th- th- what came up was like, okay, so in a sense, everybody is Catholic, uh, universal. Um, but could you talk about the difference in your understanding of that, of... of what does it mean to be Catholic, and what does it mean to be Roman Catholic, and how do where do you draw those distinctions? Or, wow, you said so much and so much very good. It was Karl Rahner who introduced the phrase "the anonymous Christian." We haven't used it so much in recent years because it's it's still making us in our formulation the the reference point. Like, we have to make them Christian before they're valuable or worthy or good or Mm -hmm. creatures of God. Mm -hmm. They're creatures of God and beloved of God, whether we apply the word Christian to them or not. I love it. So that, you know, so that's the reason we hesitate. The word Catholic 
to the best of our knowledge, began as early as 108 by the martyr Ignatius of Antioch. He was being hauled from Antioch to be martyred in Rome. And as he crossed through what is now Turkey, was then Asia Minor, in village after village, city after city, he kept meeting these new people who were from many different tribes and language groups who called themselves Christian. And he says, this is going to become a Catholic people, a universal people. And so the word was very well chosen. Mm. It meant to imply what the conclusion you and I have come to. But this message is not ethnic. It's not tribal. It cannot be tied to nationalism. It is universal. Now, what I've always said, and I say this as a Roman Catholic, I guess, uh, Roman Catholic is an oxymoron. <laughs> if, the word, if, if the word Catholic means universal, then what are you trying to do by narrowing it down to Roman? <laughs> and I'm afraid that was our blind spot. Wow. <laughs> That's, you know, that, uh, the Roman was the problem. Not that everything about Rome is horrible, uh, but uh, it it kept us from our universal mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, wow, that's profound. It is helpful, isn't? It? See, that's the advantage of historical theology mm-hmm. that you know the process of getting to these conclusions we got to, and why every one of our denominations, including Roman Catholicism is historically situated and historically limited, if if people don't mind me using that word. Uh, and, and that's true of, like, like Baptists. That's so Southern United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not saying that as a put-down, but the rest of the world right. can see that. Sure. This is Southern United States. <laughs> it's, it's not that universal. Right. <laughs> uh, are even open to the universe. Well, can I, I one one last thing, and I'm, I promise I am done with the questions. But I'm, right. I've heard you touch on, um, you know, original sin and yeah. the effects of this understanding of the sinfulness of humanity, and a lot of what Protestants, evangelicals believe about the condition of humanity, or, you know, total depravity, you know, more in the Calvinistic, uh, you know, stream of things, but just. Most all Christians will tell you that human beings in and of themselves are, are, have a sinful nature. And personally speaking, I have found some of these identi- beliefs about our inherent badness, so to speak, our inherent sinfulness have been like very psychologically damaging to people. Um, and it seems to just get perpetuated in how we tell the story of the gospel. And so I'm curious to know like, where, how you reconcile that or what are your thoughts on original sin? It seems to me that that was an original, uh, originally a Catholic idea, a Roman Catholic idea. Well, it was from Augustine. Augustine. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, that word is not in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all based on the story of Genesis 3. And here's my easiest way to speak to that. You can't start with the problem. You've got to start with original blessing, original innocence, Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, After Augustine, the Catholic Church did, in great part, begin with the problem. Even the the sacrament of initiation, which we call baptism, Mm -hmm. became Mm -hmm. totally, you know, preoccupied with 
the so-called washing away of original sin. What a uh, wow. technique-oriented uh, theology that became. It's it, too automatic, too magical, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, I think we do much better. We're back to the previous conversation. To begin with Genesis 1, where it says five times in a row, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. It was very good. So as we said, uh, you know, we can't say Mm. humanity is inherently defiled. You have to think of it more as the fly in the ointment, the problem inside of the original goodness, and it's that sets the drama in motion. The conflict, which we all have, I do too, when you and I face our own brokenness, our own woundedness, our own insufficiency, our own powerlessness, that sets the drama in motion. But you cannot say that human nature is inherently defiled. Uh, That is so opposed to Catholic theology, Franciscan theology, you must begin with a positive anthropology. If you begin with a negative anthropology, the Mm -hmm. way I see it is you have dug a hole so deep, it's almost impossible to get back out of it. Mm. Yeah, we deal with that all the time. We we actually just did a a podcast about that. And it seems to be this something, um, and I, I think it's maybe more Western, but maybe not, but it, it's certainly very much in the in the American church, this whole idea of yeah. um, how we're so unworthy and without God, we're nothing. And, uh, and it's sort of like this, uh, we have this complex of what worms we are, right? We're such worms and wretches. And it's sort of like, okay, but we're the ones dwelling on that. If I look at what God says about us, if I look at what, what Jesus affirms about us, he's not, even, even Paul the Apostle isn't um, going on and on about our unworthiness and what wretches we are and what scumbags we are like and that's not at all the emphasis the emphasis is on how loved we are right and and the potential that christ in us is the hope of glory and like this is like it's sort of like get over this junk right so like instead of going on and on about um oh without christ you're nothing yeah here's the thing though you're not without christ so stop dwelling on something that isn't reality you're so right you know we call it uh, teaching people learned helplessness So then we can come in as the superhero. We've got the answer to your helplessness, which we've just given them Mm -hmm. (laughs) by by a fire and brimstone sermon about how sinful and terrible they are. uh, I'm afraid I I agree with you 120%. You know, I I look at my own Franciscan tradition, Francis Bonaventure, all they did was announce cosmic optimism and hope. The, so the foundational so universal message was good news, not bad yeah. news. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good theology, even good theology, cannot mm. undo a, a negative anthropology. When you begin with a negative definition of the human person, uh, you can say God is love all you want, but... Yeah. People don't have the inherent capacity to receive that, mm-hmm. to rejoice in that at any deep level, because mm-hmm. they've first been given a theology of suspicion, a theology of cynicism, uh, uh, an anthropology of self-doubt. 
And we all suffer from that. That's very true. Mm. And I think that's by and large why most of, from my experience, most of Christ, Christianity, the, the, it produces, you know, just this, you know, one of the things I, I remember going to mass and it really bothered me as a child in mass. It was, and I'm sure, you know, um, that, you know, you're aware of this, uh, but right before the Eucharist, there would be this line that would say, um, you know, I, I'm not worthy to receive you. Speaking of receiving the Eucharist, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. And they would say this every week. And I used to think as a child, wait a minute, why am I not worthy to receive Christ? And number two, what, when, what's the word that it says only say the word and I shall be healed. Well, what's the word? So, and, and, and why doesn't God say the word so I can be healed? It's almost like this repetitive nature of just over and over and over again. Like I'm not good enough. I messed up. I, 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 I'm, and it's just this defeated lifestyle. Most Christians tend to live in this perpetual state of defeat. And I, and I feel like yeah. it's because of this negative anthropology, like I'm not worthy to receive you. Like it's, that's a psychologically damaging statement. I'm just, how's, what is your take on that, on that specific part of the liturgy? Well, let me tell you how I turn that around. First of all, and I know you know this, that is a quote from the New Testament where Jesus is approaching someone to heal them. And he says, I'm not worthy you come into my house. So we did take it from the scriptures. But let me tell you how I use it. I'm going to have Mass here in this Mexican-American church this very afternoon, and I'll probably say it. You know, after the whole crowd has said, Lord, I am not worthy, I, I just wait for a moment, and I look out at the congregation, and I say, do you realize you all just universally and publicly stated you're not worthy? Okay, I agree to that. So why do we make this a worthiness contest? that only those of you can come to the altar now are those of you who are supposedly worthy. No, we're all equally unworthy. So you can turn the whole thing around and say the worthiness contest itself is an ego game. Uh, a true saint can say I'm not worthy, but not in a self-defeating way, not in a, a putting the self down. But in fact, the freedom, I don't have to prove that I'm worthy because, in fact, I'm absolutely a child of God. Mm. So when you come at it from completely the other side, I just want to tell you it works. Mm. Wow. But if I were creating uh, the liturgy, I mean, that phrase has been used for centuries, so it'll probably hang around. It is biblical. I, I always try to say, what was the initial insight mm -hmm. they were trying to get to? And, you know, well, you know this. When you're feeling good about yourself, someone can, uh, a friend, can offer you a little put down, a little poking fun at you, and it doesn't bother you in the least because you, <laughs> know, you know you are okay in his eyes. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, why we can say, I'm not worthy. I'm just a little shit. Forgive me. You know, I, <laughs> I know I'm just a little shit, and, and that doesn't bother me in the least. Mm. But I still hear your point. Yeah, I don't think many people have had the the years. I've been a priest for almost fifty years, so I've had to learn to, mm -hmm. you know, translate mm -hmm. most of this churchy language. But most people just coming in, 
they hear it just like you did. Mm -hmm. So I I know your point is true. Mm, Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful explanation. Yeah. Well, Richard, I, I, this has been such an awesome conversation, and uh, I wish we had another half hour to, to keep going on it. Um, I, I just want to say real quick, too, that it's so funny. I'm just going to confess my ignorance, Richard. I, I'm aware of you. I've, I've watched some clips of you speaking. I've, I've read a lot of your quotes. People you know, you know quoted you, but I've never read one of your books, and so I wasn't that familiar with you coming into this. God, you're free. <laughs> but, but, but let me tell you, let me tell you what, 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 what really encourages me is that in my own personal spiritual development, like right now, I've just been really meditating on Ephesians and Colossians uh, and Philippians two and 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 John yeah. John chapter one, and I I've been tracking along the same exact lines of what you're saying. And so to hear you affirm all this stuff that I've already been uh-huh. thinking about, like, well, what does Jesus mean, or what does it mean when Paul says that Christ is uh, the one who uh, what he fills everything in every way? Wow, what does that mean? Like, uh, and then what does that? So to hear you like affirming this stuff, I'm like, yes, this is awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, the title of the book is going to be Another Name for Everything, Christ. I love it. That's Ooh. beautiful. Uh, that is going to be good. I love it. I've seen it that way. <laughs> so how can how can people keep up with you? I know you, you mentioned you have a book coming out, but uh, is there a way for people to follow you online? Or? Well, I'm, I'm based here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, our place. We're 30 years old, almost 31 now. Is called the Center for Action and Contemplation. The acronym is CAC, Center for Action and Contemplation. At CAC.org, you can yeah. check us out. Very good. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Thank it. You, A delight to talk to you, man. Thank you. Yeah. God bless you, brothers. Thank you. God bless you, Richard. You too. You too. Goodbye. Oh, my goodness. Guys, did did <laughs> did we really? You liked that one, didn't you? My, this is my favorite interview, and 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 again, I don't say that to say yeah. that I didn't enjoy the other ones. I loved, I've loved every interview we've done, you know. Um, but this one, for me personally, just on a personal note, like, just strikes a chord. And, and did we really just interview Richard Rohr? Did did that actually happen, yeah. or is it a dream? <laughs> like, I I feel like it's just I, I think just an I just just a real. This guy is um such a gift to us. Um, I, I just believe that the things he's saying, and even it's shocking to me that a Catholic priest, um, a Roman Catholic priest in good standing with the Roman Catholic church is able to share these things. Um, this could not have happened years ago. So it is um, it's just a gift that this man and his ministry and his voice is actually being put, put out there. And I'm just so grateful that we got a chance to interview him. And, and this conversation is exactly what I feel like is very much needed and not very well understood. And that's the topic that we want to get into uh, for for today's episode, which is all about the Christ. And again, I feel like when we talk about Christ, it's so misunderstood. It's the, the, the assumption is that we're talking about Jesus' last name as if Jesus Christ, you know, like that's his last name. Like, And actually, when we talk about mm-hmm. Christ, we're talking about something that even most of the disciples did not understand. And they, they, you know, I think, you know, so obviously the idea of the cosmic Christ, and you heard Richard share a lot about that. We got into that, but like the, the cosmic Christ, this is so not understood in Western Christianity, even though it is, it is what I, I really believe Jesus was unveiling to the world and also what Paul's revelation really unpacked for a lot of people. It's very misunderstood and, and really almost, almost, 
just a mystery, just as much of a mystery today as it ever has been. So let's get into that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and going back to the disciples, I mean, it takes it takes the writers of the New Testament a little while before they get to this understanding of the Christ as let's go to John one or or Colossians, you know, all these passages were later that, um, you know, Paul and the writer of John's gospel will talk about the implications of this, but it, but it takes a while for them to get there. You're right. Like the disciples don't get it, but how could they? And, and the earliest Christians probably don't really develop it until a a little bit later, this notion of a cosmic Christ, like what are, and, and you're right. We don't talk about that in the Protestant tradition. Um, so yeah, how do, I, what what are we talking about with this cosmic Christ? I yeah. mean, I, it's it's a mystery to me. I'll be honest, just right off the bat. Yeah, well, I think the one thing that we have to say is that uh, I don't think you guys have mentioned this yet, but just to, it needs to be said. I think in this conversation uh, that Christ was not Jesus' last name, and uh, but but you would think it would it is by the way Christians talk. I actually noticed that in watching that come Sunday. Netflix film that the way people in that movie uh, referred to Jesus as Jesus Christ all the time, they they acted as if it seemed almost like that's what they thought. Like Jesus Christ is Christ is Jesus' last name. Like, well, no, Christ is a title. Um, literally, it means the anointed one. Uh, but even then, this idea of Christ being the anointed one, I think probably initially for for the Jewish believers, for the Jewish uh, followers of Christ. Um, the idea of calling him Christ, meaning the anointed one, simply just meant, oh, he was the Messiah. He was the one anointed by God right. who was to come. But, yeah. but then that idea sort of gets expanded and expounded by by John and then by Paul right. um, into right. being much, much, much bigger, a much, uh, what's why we say the cosmic Christ, because it's not only about this guy, Jesus, who had a certain anointing and a certain calling and a certain understanding of who God was, that that Jesus embodied sort of this cosmic consciousness called Christ that uh, fills the universe and fills everything in every way and is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And, uh, and then some of these, these conversations about Christ then, um, then also start being attributed to us, that if we are in Christ, then some of these same kind of things are true of us as well. And then that's when I think we start getting really interesting in Jamal, probably the stuff that you start getting really excited about, because then it becomes not only mm-hmm. about Jesus as uh, as someone who embodied this kind of like pre-existence and, um, you know, these different qualities and characteristics, but that because Jesus embodied them and we are, are in Christ, now we also can embody them. Mm. That's so good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of like in Paul and... Um, First Corinthians 15, where it's like Christ is the first fruits of the harvest. Yep. And, and but all all who who are in Christ, meaning I would I would think everything that exists and all humans that exist um, are a part of that same exact harvest, so to speak. And it's like this is all. It's much bigger than the man Jesus. It's that. Our our nature, our true nature, is the Christ nature, and the implications of that, I think, is what they get to when they start talking about the cosmic Christ, because 
no matter how big the cosmos is. And now when we get into, you know, modern astrophysics, it's like this, our, that Christ is just so radically ginormous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 14 billion year old, uh, 14 billion year old universe, billions of year old planet. And, and the Christ mm -hmm. is the whole thing, you know, like much, much bigger than Jesus, but at the same time, not different than Jesus. Yeah, that's a great point, Matt. Um, and I love, uh, uh, Keith, what you're saying uh, about, you know, just understand, initially they understand Christ. Obviously, it's Christ is a Greek word for the Jewish, Jewish, you know, understanding of Messiah um, or, the, or the Hebrew word of, uh, for Messiah. The, you know, Christ is just Greek for anointed one, which is what Messiah means. That was initially, yes, the understanding. Right. But this, again, with Paul's revelation and others, I don't think Paul is the only one with this revelation. However, I think it's what uh, we have his writings more extensively um, about this because it was pretty, you know, pretty profound. And he was very, he was able to articulate it and lay it out. But like this idea of cosmic Christ, like yeah, again, we're talking about um, something much more than anointed one. We're talking about the anointed everything. So like the entire cosmos that's anointed, the co entire cosmos that becomes sacred and holy and an expression. And I love what Richard, and this was so profound, and I, I hope everybody kind of caught this in our interview, but that Richard talks about like, hey, listen, you know, when we read John chapter one, and, you know, it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And then verse 14, it says, and this word was made flesh and dwelt among us that we tend to think of Jesus. We tend to think, oh, well, that's the word, this incarnate, you know, word um, is now made flesh. And this is, in the person of Jesus. But uh, I love how he talked about, you know, a lot of the early, early uh, church uh, folks understood this to be not primarily about Jesus. You know, once this was unpacked and people were walking in this revelation, they understood this is talking about everything and also Jesus. So understanding Jesus as, I like to bring this out, um, as Jesus can either be seen as an idol or an icon. And I think there's a difference between the two, between an idol and an icon. And so like, for example, you know, if you look at, and I think this is even the comment from the hotline today about the Trinity, I think this does start to get into that, like in our depictions of the Trinity with the father and then the son as the second person, I think that's where we start to get into idolatry, which I talked about in the interview with Richard. Like it's these, Jesus becomes the idol and then we miss Christ because we've made Jesus the idol. But Christ is not, Jesus. Jesus is the icon of the Christ. So if you think about on your computer, you double click an icon. You know, it looks like a small, like you will see a little, you know, Microsoft Word icon on your desktop and you could double click it. Okay. It looks very small, but once you double click it, it opens up into something larger and there's a whole program in that. And I just feel like Jesus in a very physical, tangible human form is an icon of the Christ. So you can double click Jesus <laughs> to use that analogy. And when, when Jesus is opened up, really we're talking about a human being that, you know, that is a revelation of the totality of Christ, which is everything. And I think that includes obviously all of us, that includes all of creation, everything. So that's just some thoughts there. Yeah. And I think I just want to add to that too. It's the, it's the interesting notion that all of these amazing things that, that are said and that are, are true about Christ. Um, are are attributed to us as well, and to me, that's the fascinating thing. Like, heresy. well, I know, I know, for some of us, it sounds like heresy, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, it's. I think it's very scriptural, and it's actually very Pauline. I, I think, I think the this idea of the cosmic Christ, uh, similar to the idea of universalism, 
you wouldn't have these ideas if it wasn't for the writings of Paul. Like Paul's the reason why people believe universalism because they're studying Paul. They're the reason why people came up with this idea of the cosmic Christ. Um, and like you said, Jamal, it isn't only Paul, but my gosh, it sure as heck owes a lot to the writings of Paul. Like in Galatians 2.20, uh, this is just one example. When Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And he says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So that means that Christ is now alive in me. Along with me a living is Christ living with me, alongside me and within me. And he says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, so now this idea of Paul saying, the life I now live in the flesh I now live it with Christ alive in me. And, and go, this goes back to what you were saying, Jamal, that yes, in the beginning, the word was made flesh and, and became incarnate, right? So the, the Christ becomes incarnate in Jesus. But what Paul is suggesting is that Christ is now incarnate in me mm-hmm. and in you, you know? And so, uh, again, that sounds heretical to a lot of people. But, you know, this in the same way that Jesus could say that he was the son of God, I could say, and so am I. Yeah, and and the same way that Jesus could say, "If you've seen the Father, you've seen me." Um, if I'm truly living uh, one with Christ, I could also say to somebody, "If you've seen the Father, if if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, mm-hmm. or if you've seen me, you've seen Christ." Yeah. Uh, and and that's the goal. That's the point. Yeah, and I'm gonna let everyone pour their shots because I'm about to problematize something. Um, yeah, there you go. Take it down. Um, I I will <sighs> I will add that. Uh, I don't think we can get those things, those statements about the Christ without the person Jesus, because if we're going to contextualize Pauline theology, it begins at the cross. And so the the problem, the mystery for me still is, and I'm right now, currently I'll admit I'm a little cynical about Christianity. I've made some posts on Facebook and yep. I, 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 I'm having a hard time. I'll just, you know, maybe in the bonus episode, we can chat about it. But I'm still just still gravitated to Jesus and the cross and the person of Jesus that I I, I still think there's a mystery with Jesus in, in us in that. Yes, I, I he needs to be an icon and not an idol. But I, at the same time, I don't think we can get to our understanding of what our true Christ nature is without Jesus as our forgiving victim who then comes back to us with peace and, and shalom and forgiveness. And so without Jesus, it seems difficult to get to what a good understanding of the Christ nature truly is, which is grace and mercy and peace and, and, mm-hmm. and all the fruits of the spirit um, or Paul's universalism. We can't, we can't get um, this universal Christ this Christ consciousness in Paul's writings and Paul's revelation of the risen forgiving victim without the person of Jesus. Yeah, I would agree. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. And I think um, that's exactly to me, in my mind, that's exactly why uh, Jesus is always saying, look at me, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's why I think we have to begin there. And I think that's why it's important to have a, to to have a Christ centric view of God and a Christ-centered view uh, or a Christ-centered lens of Scripture that I think without Jesus, we really don't have, uh, like, he's our, he's our blueprint, you know, he's our roadmap, he's our, uh, he's certainly our example of 
how do I navigate the idea? How do we even begin to think of what it means to to be one with Christ? And Jesus is certainly uh, our, our, I would say, our best picture of that. Although the Buddha is pretty good too. Well, you know, I have to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing, though. G- yes, I mean Jesus is. Um, in in the same way he's sent, I mean, I obviously is a standard. I, I mean, I totally see that, that that it's the uniqueness of Jesus' mission on the earth is to be the standard bearer, you know, of 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 the Christ, you know, uh, of the of the Christ consciousness lived out in a human being, and and I feel like Jesus had a real, just kind of an under, just a great understanding of that, um, so that you know he can be that example. I think that um, in the same way when Jesus said, in the same way that that the Father has sent me, so I send you. I think that really should be an encouragement to everybody to say, hey, listen, Jesus is this, like the same way that he was sent to be this manifestation of the divine in human flesh. Like in the same way that I have been sent, the Father sent me, I send you. So it's not different. It's literally not different. So we're talking about incarnate deity in human flesh. It's all of us. I know that's crazy, but that's literally, I, that I cannot go, I, that's just my understanding of that, um, especially the more I go right. in this. And it sounds crazy, but I do think Jesus is that standard. The problem, I, I do think that there's, my understanding is that, okay, Jesus had this revelation. First of all, it's not a Jewish revelation. You know, the Christ consciousness and this manifestation of Christ is not Jewish because they, it was news to the Judaism. Right. It, was a, it was actually a challenge to the, to the Jewish mindset, you know? Yeah. And, and and I think, I agree. yeah, and I think that's, um, where I think the other traditions have, so Judaism. I mean, first of all, I don't want to knock that because I think I think uh, the stories that we get through the prophets and through the, the the Jewish writers throughout history. I mean, there is profound reality of of uh, that God is communicating to the world through that, and I don't discount that at all. That's very unique and needed. But there is also a lot that of of baggage that had to be unpacked due to just where humanity was in their evolution, um, patri- patriarchal mindsets, uh, just that Middle East. Um, Semitic culture that really was problematic and that had to be, there's a lot of baggage there. And Jesus also addressed a lot of that. So that influence of the Christ consciousness into Judaism was so necessary. And that's why that was Jesus' primary audience. I do think that if that you can't discount the Eastern, like what we consider Hindu or Buddhist uh, folks in the East, they were been on this tra- trajectory much longer than the Jewish uh, mindset. So I, I think they're also a very valid part of the conversation about understanding what is Christ, the Christ consciousness. Because I think in if, in a lot of Eastern, what's considered New Age uh, religion, like we're talking, we're going back thousands of years. These folks got it at a very profound level, and I think that that their conversation, I think we would do well to include not just like, hey, this is the Western Christian idea and then here's the Eastern folks and we can tolerate some of them. And it's like, no, no, I think they're actually just as much a part of the conversation as anything that we would find in the West. Yeah, well, and you know, this is this is the thing I think, this is where it gets to be an interesting conversation um, because I think, uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible. I mean, like, so of course it's possible. But I mean, once you start, once you start really looking at these scriptures, right, um, that were that were Paul talks about like in um you know Ephesians chapter one, which I've I have i have quoted this now so many times in the last four or five podcasts where where Paul says that God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be the head over everything uh for the ecclesia or the church, which is his body. And he says, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
And then, you know, when you get in Colossians where it says, you know, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and all that, right? And then the fullness of him, um, in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then we also, it says, have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. I think once you start, and that's Colossians 2, by the way. Um, so once you start really looking at those those Christ consciousness sort of verses where Paul starts really, you know, expounding on, and for me, I, I feel like I can just, I can picture Paul just uh, in his imagination, like trying to find the words to express something really so ineffable as this Christ reality and this Christ consciousness that not only is Christ in this way, but we are in him and he is in us and try, it's sort of this thing that is beyond description. So, so here's the thing though, is I, I think once you really start digging into that and meditating on that and thinking about that, it's, it seems um, really kind of foolish not to, not to acknowledge at least how similar the, some of those ideas are to Buddhist thought and, and to some other religions who have very similar, I mean, they're, they're using different terminology, but they are talking about some very similar themes. And, and to me, it seems like you would want to look into that okay? because, to, because again, I would say, I, I said this in the previous you know, interview with Carlton Pearson, that in the same way that, that God could give revelation to Jesus, uh, he could give revelation to Buddha. He could give revelation to some Hindu guru somewhere in India. Um, and he can give revelation to you and me right now, today. And so I think it's worth it for us to, again, start with Jesus, really look at what Paul has to say about this Christ consciousness idea, but then but then begin to look at how uh, we, we can acknowledge there are similar ideas and patterns that I would say the same God has given uh, inspiration and revelation to people outside of the Jewish and Christian framework uh, to give them some very similar thoughts and ideas, which are worth looking into. Right. And and this is, I think, the beauty of this universal Christ is that, um, you know, going back to the idea of Judaism, like all Christians are should really, in theory, just be really good Jews because we follow a really good Jew, <laughs> right? Right. And so there should be no divide between... There really shouldn't be a divide between Christian and Jew. Christian should just be one who exegetes Judaism a certain way, the way Jesus did. I mean, that's what a little Christ should be, right? That, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and, and, and it's Judaism then, which gives us the writings of Paul. You know, I mean, Paul's speaking in a Jewish context on, on a lot of... Um, in a lot of ways and comes from a Jewish context and gives us then this idea of this. He never met Jesus. He met the risen Christ. So he gives us this universal Christ that then when we go to the East and Buddhism and Taoism and um, a mystic understanding, I guess and it's not necessarily the East, it's an Abrahamic religion, but a mystical understanding of, of Islam, Sufism. Right. Um, we can go to the Baha'i faith. We can go to, um, all sorts of faith traditions that when we start getting into the mystic traditions, we start hearing about this, this oneness, this, this everything, this nature that we're all connected to. And right. so that's, that's the beauty of it is that we get this, not in the same exact language, but this almost universal Christ language throughout all the mystic traditions. And, and 
I'm still a Christian, but I find that it's very fascinating that Christianity isn't unique in that way. It's, it's, it's speaking almost to a same cosmic reality. There are unique things to each tradition, including Christianity, but there is this reality that all seem to want to point to. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating that the Jews, like if you think about, um, in, in evolution of human consciousness, you know, in, in more, you know, ancient Mideast society, you know, obviously each group, each tribe had their own God and they believed that their God was over their tribe and that there were different gods over different tribes. And so the Jewish understanding eventually, I don't think it began this way, but eventually became monotheistic and the idea that, oh, there's one God that is actually the creator of every this was this was actually a revolutionary thought at, at the time that there's one God that creates all the different tribes because that was not the predominant thought of the day. It was like every God for every tribe. And, you know, if we go into war, then the better God will win and triumph over the other gods. But like this Jewish yeah. understanding, like, well, actually, those aren't really real. Like there's only one God and we, the way we have the same source is a revolutionary thought. But I think it wasn't unpacked. I think it was it was influenced with a lot of other thinking, separation ideas, good and evil ideas. So when Jesus comes on the scene... It's so, I'm so fascinating to me, like even thinking about, quote unquote, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, you know, in which it says, go therefore into all the world and make disciples in my name, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey and observe all that I've commanded. And so like, obviously, Christian, evangelical Christendom has like really, really jumped on that. Like we have the Great Commission mandate and making disciples and all that. But I, I always would like thought that was, well, when I start to ask people, like, what does that even mean though? What does it mean to make a disciple? Like, we're teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Well, what did he command really? Like seriously, when you get back to what did Jesus really tell us to do? What kind of laws did he give us? You know, and the idea was like, well, really just talked about love. You know, the essence of the new commandment is to love. And so it's like, how, what is it that enables somebody to love at a level, like to really love? I'm not talking about out of some, like, this is what you ought to be doing. If you're a Christian and follower of Jesus, this is what you should be doing. I'm not talking about that because that doesn't do anything. I'm talking about like, what is it that from the inside out, like propels us to really radically, passionately love? And I think it's when you start seeing the connection, like when you can see another person as, as you, that's how you love another as yourself. Because it's like, oh, we don't see the distinction or the separation, I should say. We don't see the separation between you and me. It's like, oh, I actually love you as me because there's not actually, we're not actually separate. Oh, that's where love begins to flourish. Where you start to really care. Like I started to notice how I even treat, I, I'm just might sound crazy, but like I, I honestly like I, I don't kill spiders anymore. I don't. I really don't kill flies. I mean, that's not a religious rule that I have. It just it, I what I started noticing was going. Oh yeah, if I can like get them out of my, if they're like causing problems, like I'll get them out. But like it's like I, I just feel like there's a sacredness in everything that's alive, in everything that exists, and you start to see that. You start to go, oh my goodness, like there's a connection here. You start treating people better, even people that don't that that may be harmful to you. Like I, I even notice in how I like. I'll actually pay attention to a dog that normally I'd be like, well, I'm busy. I got stuff to do. I can't even take time to like maybe pet a dog. Like, no, I actually pet a dog. I took a dog in my car the other day and went for a ride, you know, and because he looked a little lonely. And, you know, I was like, you know, let's go for a ride here. You know, like, let's, I could just buy, and I'm like, look, I just feel like God is interested in how everything is treated. And it's not like a duty. It's just like, I, I saw the connection. Like, wait a minute, he, this dog is, is the expression of the, of the divine in the same way that I am. Maybe not in the same way, but we're different, but like, but in, the, in in justice is an equal form. Like I don't think there's there's lesser or greater forms of life 
in that sense. It's like we're all from the same source, all expressing things uniquely. And I think that's where we really begin to become like to obey the commands of Jesus, which is just to love. That's that's all that that is. That's how you begin to flesh that out. You start to see the connection between everything. That to me is the key to everything. And I think our Eastern brothers and sisters really get that. I mean, there's a reason they're vegetarians. And again, this is not a law that says you can't eat meat. I'm not saying that at all. But why? what is the heart behind treating the environment well or like taking care of animals or, you know what I mean, or nonviolence? Like, why would you not want to kill another? I mean, you know, Christians and Jews tend to be extremely violent, historically have been extremely violent. To this day, the evangelical Christians in America are the most violent, extremely violent group of people that are justifying state, you know, murder of humanity and state warfare and all kinds of stuff. Like, that's that's not coming from Buddhists. <laughs> that's coming from, you know, these traditional Christian thinking. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> there are Buddhists who are killing others. I mean... There's 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 violent Buddhists. So, yeah, I mean, awesome. I, let's not. I mean, we got to just be honest and and look at it and say that we can even interpret Buddhism violently. And the Dalai Lama had to had to come out and denounce and say Buddha wouldn't yeah. do what you. I I forget the exact story, but um, I I think there was some Buddhist violence against Muslims. Oh yeah, um, for sure. Re- recently, um, so yeah, this this violence yeah, is yeah. this is where we have to get to these and i think this is the important of some of the importance of some of paul's writing is is thinking about thinking about these things as powers and principalities not groups of people that we need want to label you know like and, and when we want to talk about people we need to talk about in these corporate corporate terms adam and christ you know like we all we all are in adam and then we're all in christ and looking at brothers and sisters across faith traditions um in this universalistic christ way I mean, how can you commit violence against even people of other faiths if you see them as a manifestation and held together by Christ? How can you? Right. Yeah. And if we if we really were truly following Christ uh, and his teachings, you know, if we really took seriously when Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And he says that at the end of a Sermon on the Mount, where in that sermon, uh, he went out of his way to talk about and to give commands about uh, loving, you know, what credit is that if you love only those who love you in return? Uh, doesn't don't pagans do that? Don't unbelievers do that? Uh, you know, he he gives us a higher standard to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to do good to those who hate us. Like if we are truly following Jesus, then it would be impossible that Christians would be violent, that Christians would be going to war, that Christians would be you know fighting for their right to own a machine gun, to to drop you know to shoot people dead who try to steal their television. Or those kinds of things, and unfortunately, we notice though that that's what's happening. That we have a lot of people who are saying that they're following Jesus, but they're really, they're really not, and they're really not even trying to. That's the frustrating thing. It'd be one thing if they were, well, I'm trying to follow the Jesus teachings. I just I'm failing. It's like no, that many of them aren't even really. That's not even part of their plan. You know, they're not like waking up in the morning and saying, "How can I be loving? How can I be forgiving?" How can I pray for those who hurt me? Well, How can I turn the other cheek? No. May, may, I mean, I, I think it also goes back to their view of Jesus. Not, I, I think it's, you know, we're probably close to wrapping this up and I don't want to go on a tangent, but I think they just think Jesus is not so loving. They just think the depiction of Jesus is pretty much that Jesus was a prick. Yeah. And 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. I, yeah. yeah <laughs> I think people have a lot of, there's a lot of Jesus out sure, there. Sure. But, I, and I also think people feel defeated. I think, I think that's another thing. I think I remember a few years back, there was a book out. I won't, you know, use the author's name, but it was a book called Radical. <laughs> and um, in this book, it was like, hey, man, we need to be radical for Jesus. Like, we need to, like, take this gospel to the nations. We need to do what the Bible says. You know, there, here's the whole, there's all that, like, hey, guys, we just need to be obedient. We need to be obedient to the Great Commission. We need to go do this. We need to, like, put our lives, like, we need to sacrifice our lives for the Great Commission. That was this big thing that Christians were being. And, and there was a, I remember I did a book review. This was a while ago. I don't know that I would do this again, but I did this book review on the book. And because I, I, I knew that it was like, extremely popular in evangelical circles. So I, I read it. And one of the people that were actually in the book that was mentioned by the author in the book as a, an example of this, like it was a few years removed from the book being published. Um, they contacted me privately and said, Hey, listen, we're tired. Like, like we were mentioned in the book as being an example, positive examples of being radical to like be obedient to Jesus commands. It's like, but we're just tired. Like we've given everything we've given our life. We've given our energy or time. We're just broke. We have nothing left. And we're just tired, we're just really tired. And I don't, I can't even now when I think of Jesus, I get tired. I don't even want to hear what Jesus has to say because like it makes me tired because I'm trying so hard to be obedient, to live like Jesus. I just don't know how to do it. And I, I feel that, like, I feel, I get that. I think people really don't know. And I, my question is what, what um, did motivated Jesus? So Jesus wasn't trying to be obedient to anybody. He wasn't trying to follow anybody. So, so the question is, if we want to live like Jesus, we have to also be motivated by the same thing that Jesus is motivated by. And I really think that's when we start, it comes down to being in touch with reality, the way, so to speak. And what is this way? And that's what Jesus embodied, the way. It's like seeing everything as connected, as precious, as sacred. Like, hey, you are sacred. You are a manifestation of the divine. Each person alive is a manifestation. Everything you see is a manifestation of the divine. Everything comes from the same source. It's all holy. That starts, I think that's when things begin to change. People will naturally, I believe that human beings will naturally live like Jesus if they can be motivated, if they can get back in touch with reality which is that we're all connected. We're all, the, we're all from the same source, so to speak. That's just, I feel like we'll lift this burden of trying to be like Jesus and because Jesus wasn't trying to be like anybody and he wasn't trying to be obedient. He was just flowing in who he is. And I think we can live that way. But, yeah, and he was, well, I, and he would be obedient to the Father then. That's, that's what John's you know, gospel would yeah. teach. That no, then, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just think that... So he's, yeah, he's, but you're he's right. He's not, he's not, he's, yeah, he's not following a certain person or, or, or someone like that. He's following his relationship and understanding to divinity. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think that's, that's also the point I think Paul is trying to make when he's talking about us, that for us, the answer is to be in Christ. And, and, and it's, if we are in Christ, then it isn't so much like we're trying hard to be something we're not. It's, it's uh, relaxing into the exactly. transformation, right? Uh, the, the reality of being in Christ. And then out of that, it's a simple thing that the yoke is easy, the burden is light. Uh, his life, right. my life is hidden in him and he is alive in me and all that. Yeah. And that would be James Allison. We got to get him on the show. Uh, relaxing into the arms of Abba. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what it's like to experience in God. We, we, we fall back into his arms. We don't climb up this ladder to go get him. We don't, it's not about striving and working. It's about relaxing into the arms of God. Or reclining, yeah. reclining into the breast of mama. There, that's fine. That, uh, that's fine. Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Whatever floats your boat, man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All pronouns are going to fail. Well, I think I think that's right. I think I think we're uh, we're we need to wrap this one up here, guys. But this was a good, great episode. I 
uh, I really was looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. And I look forward to the bonus yeah. content that we're going to have that you can only get if you subscribe and become a monthly supporter on Patreon. Yeah, that's right. And it, it, yes, and, and also it's going to be great. And also, people um, can call in. The hotline is open now. It's, it's finally open. Operators can call in now. It's it's now available. Yeah, to Ralph you. just sits by his phone and waits. That's all he does. So please call. <laughs> Oh, yeah.